You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi there, listeners. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, and we are in the fourth month of Russia's assault on Ukraine. And what's happening today will form the basis for the national security laws that we will see tomorrow. So my guest this week is Matthew F. Ferraro, who is counsel at Wilmer Hale. Matt has developed considerable expertise in the area of what are called deep fakes and how they're used to influence the public about current events, elections, and most recently, the war in Ukraine. Matt, I'm really glad that you came in. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. All right, let's just uh, let's start with the primer. So why don't you explain what deep fakes are? and how they're different from something that you have previously styled as cheap fakes. So the term deepfake is a blend of two words, deep learning, which is a branch of artificial intelligence and the word fake. A deepfake is a piece of synthetic media, and that can be text or images, audio or video, that is either entirely manipulated or wholly generated by AI. Put simply, but sort of the definition that I walk around with in my head, is that a deepfake is a very convincing media forgery created by computers. And they're sometimes called machine manipulated media or synthetic media. Sometimes they're called digital content forgeries. And they differ from shallow fakes or cheap fakes because cheap fakes are media that is manipulated with common editing techniques, like slowing a video down or simply, simply editing it, like starting it and stopping it to make a speaker appear different than they would be otherwise whereas deepfakes rely on this much more advanced technology. There are many different ways to create deepfakes or hyper-real synthetic media. The one that is sort of most commonly discussed uses a system called a GAN, or a Generative Adversarial Network. And in that situation, one algorithm called the generator creates content modeled on source data, like existing video or audio in an individual, while a second algorithm called the discriminator tries to spot the artificial content and this competition between the two networks produces a better and better fake until the discriminator can no longer identify the forgery. So again, this sort of advanced technology is what differentiates this from cheap fakes. Well, that's alarming because we also have the problem of social media amplification through their algorithm. So it sounds like these things can experience quite a widespread influence. So let's talk about what's been happening lately and give us some examples of deep fakes from the last election cycle recently and in any elections and whether they were used to hurt an opposition candidate or even help a candidate right. running. Yeah, so, so deep fakes have had a curious history in the most recent elections. The most notorious uses to date have been either by groups to raise awareness of deepfakes, or as you said, to make an uncharismatic candidate look more interesting. So you might think of it as like a positive use case. I'll give you some quick examples. In the run-up to the 2020 US presidential election, this group called Represent Us US, which is a nonprofit, created videos, deepfake videos of Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un warning the public about disinformation. So you would see these videos and it would be Putin and, and, and Kim like speaking directly to camera, warning the, the public about the kind of disinformation that could sway their votes. And that, that idea was just sort of consciousness raising. That's why they were doing that. And then in the most recent, like this year, 2022 election in Korea, then candidate and now President Yoon and his campaign used AI to create an animated, what they called AI Yoon, artificial intelligence, 
an AI Yoon answered voter questions in like a humorous way. And it was a digitized version of President Yoon acting in this sort of unusual and loose way. And his campaign wanted him to reach younger voters and break up the sort of stuffy image. And I guess you could say it worked. So those examples are interesting because they're not particularly malicious. But I think we need to think about what could happen when instead of it being funny animated Yoon, it is video of a rival politician appearing to use a racial epithet, right? Or perhaps more worrisome, the Secretary of State of a state appearing on video to say that the polling places have closed or that there's been a biological attack at polling sites and people should stay away. Things that would really have significant effect undermining faith and confidence in the electoral process. And I think the mere fact that technology exists almost guarantees that we're going to see situations like that in the future. Yeah. And I mean, I can see how that could be an even bigger problem because it's gotten to the point now where people go to Twitter if they hear fire trucks to see, you know, what the police services have put out. Social media has become sometimes a source of reliable information, but also can be a source of really frightening information. Although that is kind of funny. The idea of Putin caring about disinformation is actually hilarious. Yes. And the idea of poor Yoon, who couldn't find a personality if he had the money to buy one, you know, looking like a jocular party guy is really pretty funny. The problem that I see right now, Matt, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure I see any laws at the federal level that appear to take this on. And I do wonder, of course, how you would do that with also having respect for the First Amendment, because I can also see an entertainment value in these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's always going to be First Amendment concerns around this kind of media. I'll give you just a brief sketch of where we are from a legal standpoint. It has been interesting to watch. I mean, I've been watching this space for a couple of years and legislatures around the country have moved with, with some real speed, I would say, to try to address or get ahead of these issues. Right now, eight states have laws that bar deepfakes of some kind or another. Seven states bar what's called non-consensual deepfake pornography. And what that is, is when you take a non-consenting person's face, almost always a woman, and place it on a nude body to create a sort of believable pornographic image. And uh, sometimes that's of celebrities, but other times it's of spurned uh, lovers and uh, exes and so forth. And it's really you know, quite a assault on their dignity. It's really quite unfortunate. And so that is, I think, an area where you've seen a lot of lawmaking at the state level. Uh, two states also have laws that that bar certain deepfakes for candidate person impersonation around elections. That's Texas and California. One state, New York, is the first state to enact the statutory right to someone's digital likeness after death. So that if you're an actor in New York State, under some circumstances, you can register your likeness with the state. So when when one dies, one's heirs can then enforce those rights to make sure that they can't put their deceased loved one into a movie without paying a license, basically. And then Congress has passed four laws. It depends a little bit on you count, but I count four laws about deepfakes, but none is a prohibition. All of them direct reports, research, have a prize or award prize money for uh, deepfake detection, that sort of thing. There are many more bills pending than would bar deepfakes of some kind or another some around elections, they would change the federal election code, and then some around non-consensual pornography. I do think that your concerns about the First Amendment are spot on. Basically, what I think that shakes out to, what the net net of that is going to be, is that if you have laws barring deepfakes, they're going to bar a narrow spectrum of them, those that don't qualify as satire. 
And maybe that will be under-inclusive from a standpoint of kind of good information hygiene. But I think that's probably the safest way for it to be consistent with First Amendment. Yeah, I what I'm thinking here, though, is that there are probably existing laws that would directly apply to some of these situations. So let's talk about what might be, let's call them malicious uses or fraudulent uses of deep fakes in other contexts. You know, watching Elon Musk sometimes, you know, I think about the issue of securities fraud, where he is being one possibility because he does say and do some weird things while, I guess, arguably maintaining pretty good stewardship over his companies. But he does seem to move markets. And one does wonder whether or not you could have a scenario where a deep fake might be used in that way to commit some sort of a fraud, such as securities fraud. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think that that is spot on. And I also think that gets to kind of the core issue, which is sometimes the question is asked, are deep fakes legal or illegal or should be legal or illegal? And often the response is, well, it's not whether or not this media creation mechanism should be legal or illegal, but as applied to what? A piece of media that shows what, that does what. And I think that the one on market manipulation is exactly right. And I've used this exact case before, talking about Elon Musk is a well-known individual. But you might recall that a couple of years ago, he was on the Seth Rogen video podcast and he was smoking marijuana kind of famously. And the next day, Tesla stock dropped 6%. Now, I think there were a couple of reasons why it dropped. There had been some infighting in the company and so forth. But one could imagine a situation in which someone wants to manufacture a short like that, where you basically just produce a video of a bad boy CEO, if you will, smoking marijuana on video or doing something else that would then drive the stock down. That could create a short opportunity for someone who's taking a position. And that, as you say, would just be a classic case of securities fraud. Another example along those lines is listeners might remember, well, I guess it was a year or so ago, that the visual effects artist Chris Ume, a man I'm happy to say that I, I know a little bit, he created wonderful expert deepfakes of Tom Cruise. And it showed Tom Cruise swinging a golf club and, and talking to the camera. He worked with a Tom Cruise impersonator named Miles Fisher. And they just basically replaced his face, and it's a Miles Fisher's face, with a deepfake of Tom Cruise. And it was really fun and really kind of cool. It was anodyne. He wasn't really doing anything. But one could imagine a situation in which Tom Cruise in those deepfakes looked at the camera and said, I have a message for all my fans. Fans, Mission Impossible 7 is canceled, and I am never going to work with Paramount again. And in fact, I've discovered that the CEO of Paramount is a serial embezzler, right? And I, I would call on all my A-list friends to not ever work with this studio ever again. And this goes out and it's made to look like it comes from Tom Cruise and it gets retweeted a bunch of times and the stock of the company drops of the studio drops. And then whoever created the video is set up to make a mint with a short position. And that would be like a classic securities fraud. And so like someone, you know, I'd say, told Chris, don't do that. You know, like don't, don't do that sort of thing. But one can imagine also conversely, one can imagine a situation in which they have video of two CEOs shaking hands announcing a merger that isn't going to happen, but that gooses the stock. So like, that's a big one, market manipulation. There's sort of two others in the business realm that I talk about a lot. One is sort of reputational risk. And this is viral disinformation, deep fakes. These exacerbate the reputational challenges that companies already face. Online conversations drive brand identities all the time, especially in this sort of polarized environment where companies are expected to sort of take positions on hot button social issues. And, and one could imagine a situation 
where uh, deepfake video is used to tarnish a company. Perhaps it shows a car company's flagship autonomous vehicle driving off the road and bursting into flames or something like that. Also, social engineering fraud. I mean, that's an area where we have seen synthetic media used to defraud people. And we've been used deepfake audio, which is a similar idea of the big video, has been used to trick people into wiring money, millions of dollars to people that they think are their customers or partners because they get a phone call. And it certainly sounds like Matt Ferraro, but of course it isn't. So I think you know, those are just many of the manifold ways in which I think this causes real dangers to the private sector. You know, I did, this does sort of beg for public education, but, you know, I did a little bit of research on sort of hoaxes because there is a statute uh, in Title 18 that punishes hoaxes. And I could certainly see a situation where somebody creates something that drives a police or an emergency response. And that also does have a restitution provision where you basically have to pay for what you caused. I mean, I could see that application, but at the end of the day, this reminds me a little bit of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, which as you know, was a radio broadcast, I believe in the 1930s, which contained, you know, it was a story. It was a, a false real life account of space aliens landing on the planet. And there was widespread panic, like people actually believed this stuff and reacted and did all sorts of wild and crazy things and emptied their bank accounts and the like. And the problem that I see is people were stumped during the election on both sides. They were fooled by a lot of false messaging. I think you add to that some gloss and technological enhancement to some of the videos and so on. And really, I feel like what you have is these attack ads on steroids that we've seen for years on television and they're tedious, one issue, false statements. So I do see room for public education, but let's talk about where we are right now because we're headed into midterm elections. Our country is deeply divided on what I'll call cultural issues which is not where I think we should be focusing. I think we should be focusing on countering China, moving forward on legislation to bring production of necessary technologies home. But instead, we're tied up in these culture wars. And as we look at the Philippines, we see an election entirely hijacked by false information, including, you know, painting a rosy picture of the Marcos years, which were punctuated by torture, you know, widespread looting of Philippine assets by the Marcos family. And they've come to believe that there was a golden age. So let's talk a little bit about elections, what's happened in the Philippines, and sort of what you're seeing with respect to the role social media is playing and pushing this stuff out. What should we be on the lookout for? And sort of how do you see this in context as a national security threat? Yes, it's a really good question. I think you're absolutely right that it's of a scale that is simply unheard of before. I mean, when you just think about the interconnectedness of the world, the speed, the scale, the scope, the reach of disinformation is really qualitatively different. So it's not that disinformation is, is new, it's just that it is just so different. And then add to that synthetic media, and it is just a, a real game changer. Uh, I've actually used this before in a, in a piece that I wrote, right? Contrasted the firebombing of Tokyo in March of 1945 with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the firebombing actually killed more people than the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But it was the latter event that led to this revolution warfare, the end of the war, and the non-use of atomic weapons, hopefully forever. 
And the question is why? And I think it had a lot to do with the sort of logarithmic change in weaponry. So it went, it was the efficiency and the lethality of the weapons, one, one bomb, one plane, destruction of the city. And I think if it's not stretching the metaphor too far, it's fair to think of synthetic media and deepfakes like atomic deception, just a deception that is like so much greater than regular kinds of deception. And that has to do with the photorealism of it. And it's uh, can have, I think, a, a really ethical change in how we approach evidence. Instead of media being trusted, it becomes more like abstract art. We look at it and we, we all draw our own conclusions from the art about what it's meaning. It just becomes much more subjective. So I think we're, we're heading in that direction. At least that's my fear. Now, you had asked about disinformation in politics. And I, I think it's important to think about these things along two axes. One is exposure and the other is belief. And so one is you try to reduce basically how much people are exposed to false information. And then you try to basically make it so that people are less credulous, right? That they're less likely to believe false information. And you have to kind of work along both axes. So on the exposure thing is, I mean, I think there's a lot of debate about this in the United States, about what are the roles of social media companies to remove demonstrably false information, information that is harmful. I think that is tricky in a First Amendment protected space, but I don't think we should kid ourselves that it actually can lead to some really serious downstream effects, uh, most notably in recent vintage, the pandemic. I mean, people were, were just being told false information about serious public health questions, and that led to them harming themselves and to others by not taking basic precautions or from really taking steps that would place themselves at risk. So that's one. And then the other is belief. You want people to be skeptical without being cynical. You want them to be able to look at media and ascertain its veracity or question it helpfully with, you know, in a healthy manner without falling into sort of cynicism or nihilism that doubts the existence of all truth. The one caveat that I'll add is that there is a segment of the population for which whether or not something is true is just simply not a relevant criterion, right? It just does not matter whether or not it actually happened. It just furthers their own preconceived notion, their own narrative. And I'm not exactly sure what we can do with that. I'm not sure there's anything you can do about that. I think the idea is that there's lots of different people out there and you've got to reach the people you can reach and sort of sequester those that you can't. Yeah, I just, I remember visiting relatives in North Carolina in a time in my life when we were living in London and we'd been riding the tube with all the people that picked up these crazy tabloid newspapers that were just filled with nonsense, really kind of crazy. And then I came to rural North Carolina and I remember the grocery store, right when you went to check out, they had a bunch of the same type of magazines with all these faults. And one of them had a story about babies that they thought maybe had come from outer space because instead of tears, they were crying rocks. And I just remember one of my relatives just honed right in on that. And I was terrified because I thought, you know, does she believe this? And she clearly didn't. And I would not, she was not an educated person, but you're right. There is a certain pablum, a certain desire to, I think, enjoy that kind of stuff. It must do some sort of dopamine hit in the brain because I do, it's true that people love it. But on a national security level, you know, I was looking around before we talked today. And one of the things that I occasionally look at is the warfare blog out of West Point. And some years ago, they began to look at the idea of deep fakes, just as you have. 
they gave a, a hypothetical scenario in which a group of soldiers in the middle of war have a commander and the soldiers themselves receive an email purporting to come from headquarters and which contains a video of the president of that country, not further specified, that says, lay down your arms, you know, we've surrendered. And so they were talking about what law of war that might violate, you know, would it be a law that was that perfidy that's impermissible, although perfidy is permissible in other contexts in war. I think these are highly unsettled questions. And given the divisions in Congress right now, I can't really imagine that this could be effectively addressed. But what do you think? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I'm not really equipped to opine on the law of war issues, but I will point out that this came up uh, almost exactly with, uh, you mentioned the Ukraine conflict at the top of the show. President Zelensky was the victim of a deep fake a couple of weeks ago where somebody we don't know, which are presumably the Russians, but we're not totally sure, circulated a, a deep fake of him calling on his soldiers to lay down their arms. And it didn't work in the sense of it didn't seem to trick anyone. And the question is why, and for a couple of reasons. One is it wasn't that good of a deep fake. It actually looked fairly off. Two, the Ukrainian- So, so poor production values. Poor production values. <laughs> but of course, that will be changed in time. The technology being what it is, it will increase in uh, believability. The second is that the Ukrainian government had done what's called pre-bunking. They had gone around and told people to be on the lookout for falsified media of their president. And third, President Zelensky himself is so adept at online communication and he has such vast reach, he immediately rebutted the video with a you know, authentic handheld video of him on the streets of Kiev saying that something like, we're not going to lay down our arms except for victory. And he has such reach. I mean, he reaches you know, tens of millions of people that there was relatively little belief if we could go through my taxonomy. It's unclear how many were exposed to the false media. But I think it's fairly clear that very few actually believed it. And so he sort of conquered that defect. But you're right. I think that that is, a, that is a concern. Also, just with command and control on the battlefield, right? I mean, one could imagine a situation we're no longer war in Afghanistan, but if we, if we were and our soldiers were in Patika province and they received a radio transmission that a Taliban convoy was coming along the road and they needed to take action, and they did, and it turned out that it wasn't a Taliban convoy, it was a wedding party, and they killed by accident dozens of civilians. And it turned out that the message wasn't from the commanding general, but from a malicious actor, perhaps, you know, the Chinese or the Iranians or the whatever, trying to get the United States uh, in trouble. You know, that would be very serious. And so I, I will say that there has been some effort to address this a little bit. One of the reports that is called for by recent congressional action, it was in the 2021 NDAA, would call on Secretary of Defense to make a report including reporting on the, the dangers of deep fakes in military personnel or families. So one could imagine a situation in which the DOD responds and flushes that out. And maybe that's just, you know, it doesn't seem like much, but I suppose it's the first step. I mean, at least there was a conversation about it. Although in the NDAA, I don't know if any of the members actually read it <laughs> because it's like a small Adobe hut once printed. I mean, it's just reams and reams and reams of stuff. But we've been talking a lot about deep fakes and politics, national security that, you know, we talked a little bit about securities fraud. But, you know, I do wonder right now we are in sort of a competition war with a number of other countries, most notably China. What do you think corporate America should be thinking about in terms of deep fakes and the dangers that it presents to them? Thanks for asking that. I think 
that it is a risk. I've coined a term called disinformation and deepfakes risk management, DDRM. My basic thesis is that disinformation and deepfakes are a business risk like any other, and companies need to plan for them like their business risk. The most obvious analogy is cyber attack. So they need to have plans to deal with disinformation, synthetic media, like they do with cyber attacks. And they think also the company should proactively communicate their message on social media because owning that narrative is so important. They should register their trademarks and their copyright. I mean, I talk about this a lot because of the, the strong federal protection for trademark and copyright and for the, the, how often copyrighted information is hijacked by synthetic media or disinformation campaigns. That could be a possible shield against that kind of misuse. In the event of an incident, companies need to obviously work with their lawyers to communicate with social media platforms. Oftentimes, you can get content taken down for violating platforms' terms of service. When suitable, I think you want to counter inaccurate speech with accurate speech, with third-party validators, people are going to come to your defense and explain what's going on. And finally, I think that there are situations in which companies should go to court, go to regulators, and do what they can to vindicate their rights. And to your point before about hoaxes, you know, it's true that we don't have a lot of new laws, but it's not that we're defensive, whether it's trade liable, tortious interference with prospective business advantage, straight old defamation, intellectual property misuse. There's a, there's a lot of arrows in that quiver that I think a good lawyer can use to help protect a company. Well, I, I certainly hope so. It would be really a shame to see this get a whole lot of traction or to influence the next election. But it does seem at this point we're so locked into our own ideas right now in this country that we're forgetting sort of the lingua franca and the, the essential Americanness that is us has really been buried underneath all this nonsense, which must be to the absolute delight of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin who both read Sun Tzu's Art of War and sowing discord in the enemy being the central tenet of how to disarm a force far greater than yourself. I would like to believe that Americans would start to think about this rather than constantly getting dopamine hits from Facebook and the like, or watching reality shows on television. But I I think it's going to be a while before we pull ourselves out of this. I would like to see something more published on this, Matt, in mainstream media, because I feel like a lot of the discussion is occurring in the context of the legal profession. And I feel like it needs a slightly wider discourse in order to really become something that people can understand. No, I think it's so true. And I would just say that there's so much more that unites us as Americans than divides us. And I would hope that chief among those is a reference for the truth, that we all exist in the same epistemic reality. It sometimes seems like we're losing that, but I feel like sometimes as well that that's a choice and that we have a, we have a choice to embrace the same reality that all of us live in and do so in good faith and with goodwill. I think that's right. And I do think ultimately that will be the place where we come. It's just that we're entering another, or we may be exiting a dark period in terms of our abilities to get along with and converse with each other. But I'm really glad that you came in tonight. I'm glad we had a chance to discuss this. 
And I hope that we can build on this issue a little bit because I do think it's going to become a far bigger problem than people are prepared to accept at this point. So I'll think of you as like a canary in the coal mine, a clarion caller. You're a bit of the Paul Revere riding along saying, hey, this is an issue. You need to pay attention whether you're just an American citizen or you are a Fortune 500 company. This has got to be something that's on your radar screen and part of your risk minimization plan, if you will. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm honored by the comparison. And all I can say is I'll try to, my darndest to live up to it. And this was just such a great pleasure. I had so much fun speaking with you. It's always great talking to you. My guest tonight has been Matt Ferraro, who is counsel at Wilmer Hale. He's also the author of several pieces on deep fakes. And we're pleased to link those articles in the notes to this cast. And you should probably go ahead and look at those if you're representing anybody in corporate America. But if you're a national security lawyer, a better understanding of these things is probably going to be important to your practice. If not today, then certainly tomorrow. Matt, it's always great to have you here. I hope you'll come back in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thanks for tuning in tonight to NSLT. Share this episode with a friend. Talk about solutions to the problems of deep fakes that are being used and amplified over social media. Meet with your friends and discuss it. Try to figure out how we can stop this thing, deep fakes, from being used to divide our country. What legal solutions do you see to this threat to our national security? And how can we solve this problem without running afoul of our First Amendment rights? Maybe you can be part of the solution as a national security lawyer. Remember to subscribe to NSLT. You can always do so on your favorite listening app. You can reach out to us and give us feedback on Twitter, at least for now. Mr. Musk has not shut us down. You can find us at ABA NATSEC or email us at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. And remember, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to keep you informed about fast-moving developments that will have an impact on national security law moving forward. And don't forget, everyone on this podcast is here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.